Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. In this episode, we're discussing children and adolescents in Murdoch's novels, and they, of course, appear throughout her work. Uh, from Annette Cocaine in The Flight from the Enchanter through to Aleph Sefton and Moy in her penultimate novel, The Green Knight, and of course, the two children that appear in her final novel, Jackson's Dilemma. Now, as there are so many, we won't be able to cover every single one or indeed mention every single novel in which um, a, a child or an adolescent appears. But we will, of course, give an overview and discuss uh, the symbolism and the detail that Murdoch uses um, partic with particular interest uh, in the development of the novels, as well as um, some biographical background um, to Murdoch as well. Joining me today are, again, both um, both of our guests are um, returners. Um, and um, firstly, we have with us uh, Jan Skinner. Hello, Jan. Hello, Miles. Lovely to have you back as ever. Uh, Jan is form uh, was uh, formerly a tutor at Oxford's Continuing Education Department, and she's the author of numerous works on Murdoch. Um, if you want to listen um, to more um, of Jan talking about Murdoch, you can have a listen to the Iris Murdoch and Childhood Reading podcast. And... Uh, a, uh, a guest who's been on numerous times, and it's always a pleasure to have her, is Anne Rowe. Hello, Anne. Hello, Myers. Um, Anne is visiting professor at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre here at Chichester, and she's also Emeritus Research Fellow at Kingston University, where she founded the Iris Murdoch Archives. And of course, she's published a vast array of works, as well as editing Murdoch's letters, writing Iris Murdoch and the Visual Arts, um, the Iris Murdoch uh, work in the Iris Murdoch and the uh, Work series with Liverpool University Press, uh, lots of edited collections um, and much else besides. So this episode forms part of an ongoing series that Jan and Anne have been a part of. And you can find these um, further down on the SoundCloud page or on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're getting your podcast from. You can find previous episodes on Iris Murdoch and Childhood Reading and Iris Murdoch and the figure of Peter Pan. Jan, if we can start with thinking about uh, Murdoch's own childhood um, obviously, she was um, an only child, but did she have a happy childhood? Um, did she enjoy? Obviously, we talked a little bit about this on childhood reading, but yeah. um, do you think it impacted on how she wrote about children later on in her novels? I think that's a key question, Miles, because um, when I was thinking about how is childhood represented in the novels, I was very struck by something that A.N. Wilson says in his memoir, Iris Murdoch, as I knew her. He says that her childhood experience is lacking from the novels altogether. He says there are no Dickensian or Proustian evocations of her childhood. And that that perfect trinity of love, which she often refers to, doesn't she, in, in interviews, mm, yeah. um, um, has no part, he says, in the no place in the fictive part of her brain. Um, and I was thinking, well, it... What are the sources for, for, for her childhood representations then? Um, any writer has their own childhood. Then they possibly have the experience of being a parent, having their own children, and we know she didn't. Um, they meet other children, other people's children, um, or they learn about children through reading themselves. And I think which of those were most crucial for Murdoch is, is quite an open question, but Certainly, um, her childhood she represented in discussion as happy. So where is it in the books? Mm. I've got a couple of thoughts of that for later on. But I guess the other question is, what about the fact she didn't have children herself? I mean, Anne, I think, knows, has more on that thought. Do you? Yes, I've, I've got something to say a, a bit later, but I think your point about, or was 
Kristen's point about her idyllic childhood not being represented wouldn't necessarily make for gripping fiction, would it? Yeah. No. I mean, all the children that we're going to talk about are some of them quite seriously uh, disturbed. Um, mm. uh, so it seems that she's bypassed this happy childhood in order to concentrate on something uh, a little bit more challenging um, in, in the novels. Challenging mm. and, and painful as well. Can we start talking about babies to start with, Miles? Yeah, that, sure. All right. I mean, starting right at the beginning, you sort of assume there aren't any babies in Iris Murdoch novels, but then it's their absence that is so significant. Um, there are babies that are longed for, characters like Crystal Bird in um, The Word Child longs for a, a, a baby, um, and her brother Hilary is is mocking of that and, and unkind to her about it. Um, but his own um, lover, Tommy, also wanted a baby. And most bizarrely, I think, um, Lady Kitty... Um, wants him to impregnate her so that she can pass the baby off as, as her husband's child. Mm. I actually think that's the worst possible idea any character has in any any novel uh, that Iris Murdoch wrote. Uh, it, it doesn't happen. That, that, that none of those babies actually exist, but they're all long for. Jean Cambus in Book and the Brotherhood longs for a, a baby. She and her husband Duncan saw doctors and, and tried to, to discover why they couldn't have children. So it's a painful moment when she discovers that her husband actually um, impregnated Tamar Hernshaw and, and, um, and that, that baby was aborted. Mm. So there are longed for babies, babies that are being expected. Gracie Tisborne in um, An Accidental Man is pregnant at the end of the novel, but the baby doesn't get born. Emily McHugh in Sacred and Profane Love Machine is also pregnant at the end of the novel. But I think the the babies that are most important in their absence are, are the babies that are aborted, the, the characters who, in a period early on, certainly when abortion was still illegal, mm. um, Georgie Hands in a severed head. Of course, yeah. Um, we got rid of it, Martin's Malinsch Gibbon says. Um, Flora in The Italian Girl. Um, Morgan in Fairly Honourable Defeat. And Tamar in, um, in Book and the Brotherhood. Um, I was, I've got a quote from what Flora says to... Edmund in uh, The Italian Girl, which I think is very revealing, um, given the period in which Iris Murdoch was writing this. Mm. Flora having had the abortion, which Edmund is, is sounding disgusted by, she says to him, you're a man, you can't imagine what it's like to feel that cancer inside you, to feel it eating up your youth, your happiness, your freedom, your whole future. Men can moralise, but whoever heard about the problems of unmarried fathers, they haven't any problems. So that seems quite a strong reflection of Murdoch's attitude, I think, to the position of women at this time. It does, yes. And quite often we don't think of Murdoch as being involved in, in, in feminist issues, or certainly mm. a, a lot of... Um, early academic criticism of Murdoch um, doesn't focus on that and, and yet when you go looking for it as you've, you've just 
you know very very well described you do you do find these kind of um these these social and familial uh difficulties and issues right right the way through her work so thank mm. you for bringing those up and is there any evidence in Murdoch's letters that um, she ever envisaged that she would have a conventional family life with children? Well, I think there is in the early letters. And I, I certainly, there's two letters that really stand out in my memory from when we were coming across these letters. One of them is actually from David Hicks, uh, to whom she was briefly engaged in, in the 1940s, if you remember. Mm. And he is writing to, to, to Iris to tell her that he's breaking off the engagement. And what he actually says is really quite telling, I think. He says, I like you enormously, better than anyone I can think of, but was much worried at the thought of being married to you. Brain, will, and womb, you are formidable. Now the brain and the will, uh, I can understand, you know, she was fiercely intelligent, probably terrified him, but the womb, it sounds mm. to me that what she wanted from him was a huge expanse in the relationship that did include a family life as well. And that seems to have frightened him off a little bit. He did go on to marry um, twice and, and did have children, but children with Murdoch seemed a little bit too much for him. And then there's another letter. Bearing in mind, she's already in her 30s when she's um, involved in, in with Hicks. And five years later, she's 33, and she's involved with Wallace Robson, fellow Don from Oxford. And some of his her letters to him, she seems to be play acting a young woman in love as if she's finding love for the first time. And she says, oh, darling, I just can't work this afternoon. Isn't it awful? I just want to sit by the fire and read Woman's Own. <laughs> I'm a lot cleverer or a lot less clever. Yeah. I get on better. I think this... Um, debate inside herself about what kind of life she wanted to lead at that time and I think part of her did envisage that she would have this domestic bliss with someone she loved um, and then of course by the time she met John Bailey and married him she was 37 years old so the time for a family had sort of passed then and she'd become hugely successful as a philosopher and a writer so I think that was the end of any dreams if she ever really did have them. Sure. And and John, as we know, wasn't that keen on children either. Well, that's a big point. I think Jan's got something to say to that. I've got quite a lot to say about John's attitude to, to children later. Um, there is a little bit, John, um, John was talking about abortion. Um, mm. There is a little bit in some of the letters about that. Um, she can, wrote to her former student, David Morgan, uh, through the 1960s, and he gets himself into a predicament where he finds that his girlfriend Yvonne is pregnant and he wants to have the child uh, aborted. And he writes to Murdoch for her advice. Um, and she says, if you and Yvonne want the child for heaven's sake, let it live. I mm. think you should marry Yvonne. I think children should have married parents if possible. It adds greatly to that deeply needed sense of security. Now the abortion did go ahead um, but there was never any condemnation. There was never any upset that, that was caused about it. I think in terms of abortion, she had a very, very, as Jan made clear, deep understanding of the terrible mm. dilemma that faced women, particularly up until 1967, when abortion was illegal in this country. And I think she felt a huge sympathy for women who found themselves in that situation and were forced into backstreet abortions. Mm. Um, 
So uh, I think there's, you know, nothing judgmental in her approach mm -hmm. to abortions at all, but clearly very aware of the cost of the decision of having to make it. And you feel that that's borne out in the novels as well, Jan, as you've been mentioning. I do, yes. And I think that compassion that she has for those characters comes across very strongly. Um, Tamar, in, in the book on the Brotherhood, Tamar, Tamar's um, remorse after she's aborted mm -hmm. Duncan's child and the healing process that she needs to go through is really quite a strong theme in, in that novel, I think. Um, uh, there's certainly no sense that um, any of the women are being condemned. The men, the attitude of the men is 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 quite. quite I mean, certainly um, when Julius um, King uh, asks um, what the um, sex of the baby that Morgan was expecting might have been, she is extremely angry and says, "You know, I didn't think of it as having sex. I thought of it as a disease." Um, for her, it had been a very, very painful um, procedure, but she has um, no respect for his attitude towards it, that the mm. men are seen as being often concerned about the money. And of course, the thing to, that, that, that modern readers, perhaps younger modern readers, need, maybe need to um, be informed about is how impossible sometimes it was for a woman to get an abortion because she couldn't pay for it that these these were in early days illegal and expensive and dangerous and i think that you know that is something that does come across in the in the discussion about the the cost was not just emotional but was actually practical yes of course yeah and i think it's interesting as well i think that Murdoch doesn't just doesn't just deal with it in one novel or in in one way but she's talking about it throughout her career in in different ways with with different with different um characterizations of different women yeah. which i think is is important and lends weight to, yeah. to both of your um thoughts on that yeah. jan you i think you you're really keen to talk about the nice and the good and talk about the yeah. um, birani twins <laughs> obviously we have um lots of of younger people in in earlier novels but what 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 draws you to talk about the, these two in particular in the nice and the good I think the the the, the Brown twins are perhaps most appealing and, and memorable of of Iris Murdoch's minor characters and and certainly of her children. They're nine years old. Um, they are children of a divorced parents. Their mother Paula is living in the in the uh, grey household in Dorset. Um, she's an academic, so um, she treats them very rationally and they are very much loved but also left a lot to their own devices um and they're at the a sort of innocent end of the erotic spectrum i think in that novel um they are um open to animals to everything in the world they love shells and stones and mm. the dog and um they are able to see the prying saucers aren't they that that they she are. introduces yeah, and there seems to be something about their innocence that they're the sort of prelapsarian sort of um garden of eden children who have have yet to to fall um and murder is quite sorry, sorry. Carry on. well it's a question they also ask these these bizarre questions which like how did they cook eggs in ancient greece and um why don't animals blow their noses? 
sorts of <laughs> questions which these days a child wouldn't need to ask their mother because they would simply Google them. Um, and I did Google them, and it turns out that animals do blow their noses. In that. Do they? So, right. Yeah, some do. Well, not with a handkerchief, obviously. But they're, they're, they're intelligent, they're precocious. They, they seem to be quite intellectually precocious. They've already read Homer. They are only nine. Presumably they've read Homer in, in, in translation. Um, but they, they're surrounded by adults and, and by teenagers and adults, all of whom have a much more um engage with the um the world in its its complexity so their innocence i think comes across very strongly it certainly does yes but also i think they're kind of as you've mentioned they're kind of otherworldliness yeah they, they they are almost they they are they are obviously plumbed into um that kind of that kind of dorset landscape that kind of naturalistic um and, and almost pastoral sense of um of as you say prelapsarian children mm. they are also very odd as well i mean and do you do you think that they're rather weird these twins <laughs> uh yes i do um it just to, to, to rewind a little bit um Jan, mm. you were talking about john bailey's dislike of children mm. i think john's attitude to children seeps into almost all murdoch's portrayals of children really and to say that he disliked them was really an, an underestimation he hated them he, he really disliked children um and um i mentioned this once to, i was interviewing a, a lady called lady quinton who was wife of sir anthony quinton and uh, i can't even remember why i was interviewing her now but she mentioned the fact that John Bailey disliked children. And she remembered being on an aeroplane with them once and, and a child was sort of kicking the back of the seat. And she said he got very, very angry at, at this child. And the child was terrified uh, by John. So I was speaking with Audi Bailey, um, obviously jo John's second wife recently. And I said, you know, I'm doing this pod podcast about children. And I think that maybe John's views of children seep into the novels. Did he really hate them that much? And she said, absolutely. Mm. He really, really didn't uh, like children at all. Um, but she had no idea why. I said, well, why would this be the case? And she said, she thought maybe it was because John was something of a child himself and the relationship itself was one of more of an adult and child. Like Peter Pan, he, he, he couldn't grow up either. So, um, and I honestly think they probably would have made very bad parents. And I think the um, incidence of bad parents in the novels is another topic that really would make somebody could write a wonderful PhD thesis on this topic. Bad parenting. All mm. those characters that you mentioned, Jan, when, when you were speaking about the women who were longing for babies, mm. wanting babies, they would have all very, very bad parents. <laughs> I mean, yes. Crystal, she would have been very cloying and possessive. Lady Kitty and Hilary Bird, that doesn't even bear thinking about. Uh, Tommy and Hillary, um, none of those would have grown up, would have uh, progressed in life to be good parents to those children if, if they'd come along. Um, there's deaths in the novel called by bad, bad parenting, you know, mm -hmm. Titus in the mm -hmm. CBC, Charles fails to parent him properly. So and uh, juvenile delinquency as well, which links, I think, with with um, the nice and the good. And you're talking about the children there. Um you know, uh, beautiful Joe. He really needs a mention in in Iris Murdoch's mm. delinquents. Yeah, um, and the fact that he was driven to to you know raped in order to get the love and security 
of, and family life that he needed. He, he tries to rape uh, Colette Forbes and then dies as a result of that. All that could have been prevented by good parenting. So there's a huge amount of the novels going in the background. But in terms of um, the Birani children, mm -hmm. uh, do they ever see their father? You talk about this idyllic childhood in Dorset by the sea mm -hmm. and how their mother nurtures their links to the classics and they're, they're out there in communing with nature, which is really good for them. Mm. Has Richard Barani ever visit them? Do we don't hear that, I don't think, do we? I mean, they're certainly still fond of him, aren't they? They want, they they are positive about the, the couple getting together again, aren't they? They they don't seem to have negative fear. Clearly, Paula doesn't see, their mother doesn't seem to give them any um, negative feelings about... No, no. The, he's a, an absence in their lives in, in one sense because he's not there, but you sense that they have a an attachment to him. Mm. Um, yeah, I think these children, um, the twins, I think the, the major thing about them is their resilience. There are some children who can be really harmed by very, very, sometimes insignificant things. They're very sensitive. And mm -hmm. then there are these children who... They thrive on neglect somehow, you know. Um, they go to boarding school. I think they, they go to, to Dorset for their summers. Mm, Not a huge yeah. amount of contact. And it's this resilience. It seems that some children can be treated quite badly and they, they don't suffer from it. And these children in particular, you say, they have this almost Woodsworthian contact with yeah. nature and they can see into the life of things. And I think that maybe this... Um, flying saucer that appears at the end of the novel is a kind of symbol. Yeah. Communion with nature that they've been given somehow as a gift and, and they can um they can benefit morally and and psychologically from from that without the interference of very much influence from their parents at all. Um but as twins they have a, a, a built-in sort of resilience I think with with each other. Um, whether they are modelled on any academic children that she knew, um, I, I have no idea. Do you, is there any evidence, Anne, that they're, they're coming from? None that I can think of at all. No, no. no. I wonder how far, when you talk of John Bailey's dislike of children, when they socialised with other families, the children were kept out of the way because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was felt they wouldn't be very welcome. Certainly, again, Andrew Wilson has an anecdote in his memoir of of how um, one of uh, his children was still around when when the Baileys came for supper, and and uh, uh, and and John said something rather sharp to the little one who was sort of rushed upstairs. So perhaps we, you know, my my theory that one of the one of the sources for a, a writer to learn about and represent childhood is an encounter with other people's children um, might not have been a very rich source for Iris in, uh, in her novels if if in their social interactions children were kept out of the way um, because she was teaching adolescents but not till they were sort of 18, 19 mm. so a sort of younger group of of pre-adolescents pre and, and school, early years children would, would not have been part of her life at all, would they? I don't think so. I think she, she may have been godparent, 
to some of <clears throat> her friends' children's, but I'm not sure how um, much um, involvement she had in their upbringing. No. I don't no. know. What about the kind of the, the kind of inherent danger? Now we we get this with the um, we get this a little bit, I think, in Nice and the Good with sort of um, the the predatory male. Mm. But I, I, uh, there's a sense in a lot of Murdoch's novels that older men can be very dangerous to um, younger people. We think about uh, Rosnoff and Hattie in Philosopher's Pupil, of course. We might think about uh, Michael and Toby in The Bell. Uh, we we could think about um, Pearson Barbara, <laughs> I suppose. Jan, do you think it's worth talking a little bit about the vulnerability of young adolescent boys to the sexual predilections of older men, and maybe the her, the of uh, young girls with older men in the novels as well? There's some uh, there's yes. something there that's that that runs all the way through, perhaps from um, may, maybe from Flight from the Enchanter um, through through to uh, Green Knight. Well. Certainly in The Nice and the Good, you, you have that as a strong theme. You've got Pier the two, moving on from the, the twins, you've got Pierce and Barbara, who are the sort of 14, 15 year olds. Yes, of course. Um, Pierce is desperately in love with Barbara, Barbie, so that you've got that young adolescent passion and desperate anguish he goes through when she no longer seems to want to be his friend or, you know, hasn't. She hasn't progressed from friendship into a, a romantic attachment. She's just come back from a year in a uh, in um, a finishing school from Switzerland. She's sophisticated. She flirts with John Duquesne. She doesn't want to know um, about the teenage boy who follows her around everywhere. Um, so you have that relationship going on. Um, but at the same time, each of those two adolescents is the object of a quite uncomfortable sounding um, attraction from, as you say, this uh, this older male. Um, in Barbie's case, it's it's really cost the, the Holocaust survivor um, who lives in the grounds of, of the estate, who um, is tortured by his physical attraction to Barbie. Um, but um, he restrains himself and when she, um, throws herself at him, he, he deliberately moves away. He is conscious of the temptation he has and he resists it. But at the same time, you've got Uncle Theo, who is um, Octavian's brother, who lives in the household. And he is attracted to Pierce. And there's a very, very uncomfortable scene when they're on the beach after the children have all been swimming and Pierce has drying himself off. He, he's lying naked on the sand. And there's a long description about how un Uncle Theo is putting shells along his back and looking forward to it. it it's just, it's, it's almost creepy. Mm. And uh, then the, 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 the younger children come along and disturb him. But there's a very strong sense there that, that he is playing with danger. And he's indulging this inappropriate, uh, these inappropriate feelings he has for his own gratification, without any sort of consent from the from the young uh, adolescent. So that, those are the very interesting contrasts. I think of, in, in the same novel, you've got two men who handle differently this natural inclination that that they have been given. 
you you do you do indeed and i think that is something this idea about the uh, the predatory male preying on the younger person we see it with um rainborough don't we with annette in in, in flight from the enchanter when yeah. he, when he yeah. when he strips yeah. her half naked and then and That's then forces, right. in, forces yeah. her into into the cupboard yeah. um and you get it and i and i suppose it's a little it, it's different between um so the older male and the younger male it, it, i think murdoch writes it a little bit differently um doesn't she and you see it like that as well the way in which uh, murdoch is portraying these kind of um what you might call transgressive relationships or um... yeah well we're in 1968 now when sure. this book was written um where this huge burgeoning of, of sexual freedoms i think she was afraid that that would trigger these emotions that in decades past had been kept very much under the surface. And it's almost like the awareness that um, elderly men can have these attractions um, is what she's trying to, to bring to the, to the fore here. Um, these yearnings um, are probably more ubiquitous than people may imagine. Mm. Um, many men would be, many readers would be shocked by them, but she's saying we can't sweep these things under the carpet anymore. Um, so the attraction crops up a number of people, as, as John was saying in his book, ha books, have this temptation. Mm. Um, so it, adolescence becomes a very dangerous time for both the boys and the middle-aged characters who are sexually aroused by them. But I don't think it's really presented in, in an unhealthy or a punitive way. We just have to accept it and deal with it in, in some way. It's as agonising to the men, as you've said about, you know, um, Uncle Theo, and um, it's it's agonizing for Theo too, I think. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it has to be a, a handled intelligently. Intelligently, I think. Um, the the little pa a paragraph, a little quotation from another of the novels always springs to mind when I read this novel. Um, it's in the Black Prince when Bradley Pearson looks back on his life. And he says, there are no spare unrecorded encapsulated moments in which we can behave anyhow, uh, and then expect to resume life where we left off. The wicked regard time as discontinuous, the wicked dull their sense of natural causality. The good feel being as a total dense mesh of tiny connections. My lightest whim can affect my whole future. That's the moment that she's mm. I think there are nine incidences in The Nice and the Good where various characters come to this point where they are just about to descend uh, into that moment of sexual gratification that is completely overtaken by the, the moment. And mm. there's Duquesne with Judy, um, mm. which is, you know, all these moments are encapsulated and represented symbolically in the, the Bronzino painting uh, that's at the heart mm. of the novel. That erotic pro, um, moment where Cupid and Venus, mother and son, are about to incestuously, um, you know, uh, it, uh, have their moment together. So um, I think it's it's an awareness uh, that she's raising in the novel, that these emotions are there. They can be triggered by young boys for elderly men, young women for, for elderly men. Be aware of them and work out, you know, that you have to handle them. Uh, so, yeah. Barbara flirts madly with Duquesne, I think, Jan, yes. isn't she? Yes, that's right. Yes. That's yes. another moment where it's yes. another pivotal moment there. Absolutely. Um, and I, and you, you're talking about Uncle Uncle Theo there. Um, it, it does remind me very much of um, Michael and Toby's relationship and the, the kind of the... Um, 
the pressure and the kind of the, the pain that Michael goes through in in the bell. Um, perhaps not unlike the kind of um, the kind of the uh, thought that that Rosanoff goes goes through later on. Of course, that is a that is an incestuous relationship. And in fact, I'm thinking now you, you mention it that there are a number of um, incestuous um, relationships between generations in 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 several of Murdoch's novels. But uh, Jan, let, let's let's have a think about Michael in the Bell because he does yeah. seem to be a kind of a, a character type that she's going to revisit, uh, not just with Uncle Theo, but with uh, with other male older male yeah. characters, middle aged characters. Uh, later on through yeah. her work, isn't she? I, th I think the bell is, for me, the most poignant example of a, uh, an adult male who is tortured by his um, attraction to and love for uh, younger men. And um, it's a complex portrayal because he has two chances. He has, in the flashback, we see how he is drawn to the 14-year-old uh, Nick Hawley when he, Michael is a teacher, he's in a boarding school, Nick is his young pupil, and the relationship over a period of time develops um, to the point where Michael knows that he's playing with fire. Um, but he deceives himself into thinking it'll be all right. It's nearly the end of term, nothing's really happened. And of course, what does happen is that um, Nick, goes to the um goes and tells of, of the situation during a, a school uh, religious retreat so we never know quite what might have happened in that situation but th there's one bit i wanted to quote uh, from from michael's uh, from murdoch's commentary on michael's psychopathology if you like which i think runs through all her novels in terms of how people make moral decisions. Mm. She says of Michael, by a dialectic well known to those who habitually succumb to temptation, he passed in a second from the time when it was too early to struggle to the time when it was too late to struggle. Mm. And I think that that really is, a, you know, a, a, a very key, because one of the questions about Michael and, and Nick is how far is Nick some sort of seducer? How far is Nick, even as a 14 year old, seen as some sort of um, tempter that, that carries some responsibility? Um, I, I There's a quick, very quick side uh, reflection. I gave the novel to a friend to read who's been a school teacher and I was interested to know what she made of it. And I thought she'd come back and say, this man, you know, this was totally inappropriate. He was a teacher in a position of authority, etc. Et what she actually said, which quite disturbed me, was, I have known children like that. Mm. Mm. Um, and then she said, he's not called Nick for nothing, is he? The old, yeah, old Nick. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, that, 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 I still, I didn't still, I still didn't see it like that, but it, it struck me as interesting that someone could, could see it like that. Um, Especially course, somebody that, especially somebody that might have spent years in, exactly. in environments. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I yes, think that's something that, that Murdoch reflects on as well, because at the end of the novel, it seems that Toby hasn't really been that damaged, or at least the novel doesn't, Murdoch doesn't suggest he's been that damaged. Actually, he's going to go off to Oxford and he's going to have quite a, a um, you know, a, you know, he's just going to pass, pass off what happened that summer as, as, a, as almost like a, a piece of the, a piece of the, um, of the, 
of the beautiful past, much like um, um, Dora is going to, she's going to go on and, and have a better life. I do wonder whether that kind of intense focus on Michael underplays the damage done to Toby in the novel, or whether, or whether Murdoch is suggesting that there isn't that much damage done at all. Toby and Nick are, are very different, aren't they? I mean, I, yeah. and you, you had thoughts on Toby, I think, more than... Yeah, me. yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, I think when we talk about this novel, when I've taught this novel, um, Michael Mead has always been, when I've written about this novel, it, Michael Mead is the focus of, of the discussion. Yeah. And you tend to, to forget about Toby. He's mm. such a, you know, almost an insignificant character in a way. And I think he does tend to be underplayed a bit by critics because he's crucially significant, Toby, I think, to the moral framework of the novel. Mm. Um, Toby's reaction is um, takes place, I think it's chapter 12. The entire chapter is taken up with Toby's response to Michael's kiss. There's a long, long section of psychic narration running through the emotions and thought process that go through Toby's mind after the incident has happened. Now, there's some really interesting things between Dame Julian, because it, this happens after um, Catherine is giving the lunchtime uh, sermon and she's reading from Dame Julian. Um, and, you know, that pa famous paragraph um, from the Divine Revelations where she says, and all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And it is for Toby, Miles, you're absolutely right. All is well, but why? So I mm. think what we've got in this chapter is the equivalent in the novels of the M and D situation that we get in the philosophy, where Murdoch takes us through the thought process of somebody who diffuses uh, an incredibly difficult and dangerous situation by turning things around and seeing things from a different perspective. So what we get is a perfect example um, of Madokian unselfing that she shows us, illustrates to us. Um, Toby stops going over and over the effect of this event on him. And he starts to think about what he calls greater complexities. What was it like to be Michael? Mm -hmm. What was Michael thinking now? And he immerses himself in Michael's consciousness. So by the end of the process, Tommy finds himself unable to condemn Michael and becomes, and he says, curiously protective of Michael. So in a nutshell, this is a lesson in just vision, tolerance, forgiveness, and Toby's intelligence in his lack of vindictiveness, I think carries huge weight in the novel and not, I think, talked about enough and not um, focused on by critics enough. Um, now, oddly, you were talking, Jan, earlier about um, these the, the, the childhoods uh, of these characters who go on to behave badly or well. Mm. Uh, there's nothing about Toby's upbringing, nothing here that might help us to account for why he can handle situations mm. that so many other of Murdoch's characters are unable to do. Um, now, that led me to think about another character, another good young man, another adolescent in Iris Murdoch's novels, who seems to have a wisdom and a perception way beyond their years that um, grown men in the novels don't seem to have the wisdom. And that's Penn Graham. Right, in yeah. Rose. Mm. Um, he's deeply in love with uh, Miranda, Miranda Perrinet. Um, He's only 15 years old, but he understands something that so many of Murdoch's grown-up men can't see. He has to see Miranda as she is, and not as she would appear in his imagination as the perfect um, object of his desire. And this is what the narrator says about Penn. He had learned, he told himself, an important lesson 
The lover readily imagines that he and his mistress are one. He feels he has love enough for both and that this loving will swathe the two of them together like twin nuts in a shell. But what one loves is, after all, another human being, a person with other interests, other pains, in whose world is oneself an object, among others. He must learn, he realised, to live in the world uh, with Miranda. Now, strangely, as luck would have it, I happened to be speaking to Peter Conradi uh, on the phone, and he mentioned Penn because he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm going to talk about adolescence. He said, oh, I do hope you're going to say something about Penn. Mm. I said, yes, I am, actually. <laughs> now, he said something interesting. He said, do you know that in the um, Iowa manuscript, there's a full 10 to 20 pages in an early manuscript um, that give a backstory to Penn's life when mm. he was growing up in Australia. Now, there's nothing about this. There's nothing about Toby's growing up. But he said she seemed to have to inhabit this space to get to know this character before she could articulate. Um, you know, she had to be him in a sense mm. uh, to be able to give him uh, in any kind of convincing way. But it doesn't appear in the novels. How interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering if we went to um Iowa and saw the manuscript for the bell whether or not there is a lot more about Toby's upbringing mm -hmm. uh, that gives us a clue as to why some characters seem to have this ability to handle these occasions and others don't I wonder whether it's something to do with Penn being an outsider as well yeah um and and in some regards maybe we can <laughs> as 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 readers and as outside of the novel as it were we can also maybe Get a little bit closer to understanding Penn, and maybe that's why she gives Penn a, a better kind of vision, if you like, within the novel. Yeah, yeah. We know well. We can imagine quite a lot about Toby's background. I suppose we he's going off Oxford. Yeah, he's, yeah. Jan, do you think that there are sort of links here with Miranda? Because Miranda, in um, an unofficial rose, does seem to be rather damaged and quite, in a sense, quite dangerous as well. Um, is she the kind of the the, the contrast with Penn here? <laughs> yes, I think Miranda. I was thinking of Miranda um, alongside Felicity in um, the Sandcastle. Right, there's two teenage girls who are both anguished at the thought that their fathers are about to, if you like, leave the triangle. Mm. Um, I, I wondered whether to some extent Miranda and Felicity represent a bit of Murdoch's childhood that she didn't talk about um, I mean I'm not saying no evidence that, that there was ever any question that her father was likely to be absent from, from the family or to, to, to leave the family but unconsciously I think it's not unusual for a child to fear that um, leaving of 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 the of the relationship. Um, of course, in Miranda's case and in Felicity's case, it's well grounded because Miranda's father is um, Randolph is is like leaving, um, but she seems to me to be a very authentic representation of a sort of a teenage hysteria. Um, Miranda um, jumping out of the tree 
mm. um, to uh, draw attention to herself for Felix um, Meacham, with whom she is um, a sort of father substitute figure, but also the man that she has an adolescent um, fixation on because um, he both represents her father and and an attack on on the on the marriage because he's in love with her mother. So Miranda's acting out seems to me to be well drawn, even though it's it's um, on on one hand unlikely. I'm I'm convinced by it in a way that I can't quite explain. I don't know. And you do you? Well, I I think someone probably me is called the demon, the demon child. Right. Miranda. Right. That's um, quite strong, Anne. I think you're going to have to oh, defend yeah. that a little bit. Uh, well, no, I actually, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I was going to make, I'm not sure if I would use that word to describe her. Now. She's seriously damaged, I think. Um, but whether or not she is a damaged child or simply a dangerous human being, I mean, you know, we, we're back to our children born good or evil here. Mm. Could Miranda simply um, be acting out something that inherent in, in her character? I mean, there's something unusual about this representation of Miranda. I can't hear Murdoch's voice. In right. This. Mm. Oh, I, I, I can. You see, I hear it. Um, I hear her adolescent voice expressing yeah. some sort of. The other thing about Miranda is that she has lost her brother. Yes. Yeah. That must. That be must. Important. Yeah. Well, I think. This this sort of comes out at the end. I mean, after she's been portrayed in a, in a sort of very bad light. Um, it, I, sometimes I think descriptions of this character set up as kind of cryptic challenge. There's a little incident, for example, she she bounds noisily into the, the turret, her bedroom, and Hugh and Randall are talking below, and she starts singing very loudly in order yes. to make herself heard. And the song is Opera de Ma Blonde. It's a, a paradoxical Napoleonic war song in which the birds are singing while a massacre is taking place. And I think that seems to be sort of emblematic somehow of a very sinister undercurrent, right. the way this child is, behaves. And I've also, I thought that this is more John Bailey's view of what a, a horrible <laughs> child would be like than it is Murdoch's. I mean, right. yeah. um, Hugh, you know, Hugh doesn't take to the child. Uh, and again, I wonder if there's something reminiscent of, of John's dislike of children here. Um, he, he, And maybe she's exploring what this dislike of children could be like and where it's it's coming from. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Hugh thinks that Miranda's childish demeanour is a masquerade, that there's a kind of cunning in her that, that's dangerous and there's a lot of cat imagery that dis describes her and what bothers me about Miranda and Felicity to a certain extent mm. is this strange mixture of comedy the way these children behaves is hyster it's funny sometimes yes <clears throat> and, and alongside that mixture is a humor of a kind of nastiness mm. you know a bizarre mm. child and something funny and terribly tragic and, and re deeply disturbing about the way that these characters um, are behaving. Um, so, you know, and she's very sexualized, Miranda. Mm. Um, there's a hint of something incest incestuous about her feelings for her father. 
Um, mm. There's a conversation, I think, between Randall and Hugh at one point, uh, where Miranda runs into the room and sits on, um, Miranda runs and sits on Randall's knee. Uh, and Randall's hand descends Miranda's back and Hugh has to turn away. He's quite dis distraught by this. And there's other sections of the book where something unseemly is hinted at in that father-daughter relationship. Emma Sands perceives something strange about uh, Miranda. She says, um, I believe that that young lady is capable of anything. Mm -hmm. um, and she's right, you know, her behaviour, as you say, Jan, when she jumps out of the tree, mm -hmm. Felix wants to slap her and he calls her a brat. Now, this is a bit extreme treatment of, of a young 13-year-old girl. And as you write, you know, you, you say rightly, she has experienced the death of her brother. Yes. Her mother is so uh, tied up with her own life that she doesn't take time to explore Miranda, her grief at the loss of her, loss of her brother. And there are moments of deep sympathy for Miranda. She goes to her brother's grave, she says, and the poor child, she says she knows more than 20 people who've died. Mm. And when she visits Steve's grave, um, she says, uh, the narrator says she's dignified and, and solemn and she feeds the birds there. But even then, the narrator steps in and notes the song of the cuckoo while mm. she's there, which mm. signifies foolishness, insanity, and nonsense. So how do we read Miranda? Yes. Um, she's yes. an enigma to me, uh, a, a quite a troubling one. I mean, do we see her as a, a child who's been seriously damaged? Her parents are, are and her mother, her father, pursuing their private life, their divorce, their, their separation, the affairs with other people. And this child is being left alone to grieve and not be helped. Or is she something of an Iago figure, a motiveless malignity? You yes. Know? One thing we know about children, I suppose, is that when they're deeply, deeply unhappy, that that can represent itself as really bad behaviour. Yeah, yeah. And and if, if, if Murdoch knew that, I think she was possibly using... Um, I mean, she tells us the situation Miranda is in of grief at the loss of a brother, grief at the loss of a father, grief at the potential loss of her family relationship, rejection by uh, Felix, who buys her a doll. There's this wonderful yeah, moment yeah. when her, her awareness of him, uh, her feelings about him are, are completely rejected in that and that present and a reminder to her that for him she is simply a small child if we acknowledge that there is a lot of suffering going on maybe the bad behavior is what you would expect so it might i'm a little bit uncomfortable at, the, at, at, at demonizing her because yeah i i think you, i mean i think you're absolutely right i think there's plenty of evidence there to, to suggest, you know, a reason um, and a deeply unpleasant reason and uh, why this child should be damaged. The, my the mystery is whether Murdoch, well, that was how Murdoch saw her or whether that's, you know. That is my point. That's yeah. my well, point, that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I, yeah. I, I just, um, yeah. I feel shades of John Bailey here. <laughs> and, yeah, so that's, yes. That, that, um, yeah, we won't know. <laughs> she's going to be a hard nut to crack, I think. Um, when when she grows up. I wonder whether there is something to be said as well about um, Miranda being a development from 
Felicity Moore in in the Sand Castle. Mm. Um, you've talked about uh, Miranda um, jumping out the um, falling out or jumping out the yeah. tree. Um, we could connect that, of course, to to Donald Moore climbing the, the yeah. town school as well, can't we? I mean, there's this cry for help or cry for attention. Um, yeah. Those those two children, I suppose, are our first real. Uh, obviously, we've got an, Annette, who's um, a teenager in a Life of the Enchanter, but Donald and Felicity seem to me to be not adolescents, but really are children. Mm. Um, Jan, could you say a little bit about them and and um, the, the, the kind of the, the role that they play in this kind of quite quite sad sad, um, sad family drama? Yes, I suppose I've always seen the sandcastle as a form of using the tropes of the school boarding school story. Uh, and I think I've talked about that before, but um, uh, Donald's cli climbing up the tower is the sort of incident that school stories always use, the, the um, end of term sort of dramatic, um, the denouement, and he is doing it for much more complex reasons than just um, being disobedient or calling attention to himself. He is desperate because of the pressure on him from his family, uh, from his father in particular, for academic success, which he doesn't want for himself. Um, Felicity, again, as I said, is crippled with the anxiety about her father abandoning the family. But her hatred of rain is, I think Anne probably would certainly say this, of Rain Carter, the woman, young woman her father's in love with, her, her hatred of, of rain is quite disturbing. And the, there's this extended ceremony that she performs on the beach when she mm. makes the image of um, Rain Carter and she um, cuts her own arm and makes a potion of milk and um, mixes her blood and then offers it to a, a beetle. I mean, it's a very, very weird... Um, strangely sort of disturbing scene and um i think i think there i would see her as rather more or rather more disturbing than, than miranda but i don't know if anne agrees with that yeah i think so um you know they the these children are both self-harming um, yeah yeah they perform, they, they perform this ritual they, they say they say to each other shall we go and cry tears of blood and this involves them making tiny slits between each eye with a razor blade, then willfully making them cr making themselves cry. Apparently, this is something they could do at will. They can cry very easily when they want to, uh, so that tears of blood mingle and, and course down their cheeks. Um, and as you say, Jan, a significant part of Donald's issues seem to be this cold and distant relationship with his father. But then, mm. of course, Donald is not clearly enough evidence in the text to suggest that Donald is having a homosexual relationship with Jimmy Card. And I suspect um, yeah. there's that strange Tim Tim character, who's the goldsmith. Yes. Um, there's some something there, you know, when Donald disappears, it's to Tim and he's, he's gone yeah. for days and mm -hmm. he's with Tim Burke. Um, so I think this, and that long section that you mentioned, Jan, about the tower when Mm. Oh, climb the tower yeah. to draw attention. He needs help. Yeah. And he does something completely bizarre to try and get his parents to stop thinking about themselves and look at him. He needs help. Um, and there's something interesting, I think, about this. It's a kind of self-reflexive action on Murdoch's part, herself. 
the focus of the book, if you talk about the sandcastle, it's about more and rain and more and his marriage yeah. and, and the morality and Bledyard intervening. Um, it's almost as if she's giving herself, telling herself off. I mean, the focus of the narrative is on the adults and their love life and their marriages. These children need to be looked at. And that episode at the end, uh, she goes to an extraordinary amount of detail, making up for the yeah. fact that the focus of the novel repeatedly leaves these children in limbo to concentrate on themselves, you know. Um, so Donald, I think, will could come out of it okay if his homosexuality is uh, recognised. He goes upstairs for a fatherly chat at the end of his of the novel. Do Donald and Moore go up to the bedroom. Um, whether or not there could be some resolution there it is, could be possibly hopeful. But Felicity, I mean, she is really, she's even more strange, I think, than, than yes. Miranda. Yeah. Yes. Um, she, it's, what interests me about Felicity is these psychic powers. She seems <laughs> to have this psychic ability. Um, she's discovered a witch mark on her body, a small mm. protuberance below her left nipple, which she believes is given to witches so that they could be sucked by their familiars. Mm. Um, she's accompanied by the long dead family dog, Liffy, who's been dead for years. So she has this kind of um, spirit friend in the dog and then the um, <laughs> the, the gypsy who, who, who appears to her. Um, and then, as you say, Jan, his behavior becomes really very sinister when she discovers her father's involved with the painter, Rain Carter. Mm. And she plays with tarot cards Yes, she says this is a power, a power game, um, an eclectic form of witchcraft, which involves purloining an intimate article from a person whom she wants to curse. And then again, when we see this bizarre um, episode on the beach where she's making this spell where Rain is going to be cursed, it's this bizarre mixture of comedy and something mm. horribly tragic and dangerous mm. that I find really really bizarre um it doesn't and again this doesn't sound like a madokian voice to me at all now she's dealing a pack of tarot cards as well when she's on the beach now <laughs> in this same conversation with peter i thought i would maximize on my opportunities uh, and i said did iris ever have any interest in the dark arts and, and tarot cards uh, and he came back and he said yes he sent me a, a, an email in fact <laughs> <laughs> and he says before um hit marriage iris drew tarot cards as a form of divination uh so did france see iris murdoch a life um yeah. marshall best who was um iris's american editor when she submitted the draft he had serious concerns about felicity and asked iris if she could change or modify it and she refused to change okay. um and then Peter pointed to two journal entries uh, where Murdoch records, this is 1952, where she records her own dealing of the tarot, card, tarot cards, further strange behaviour of the tarot. Two lines cut out of the journal at this point. And then I drew a second card this time. It was a big stick. I don't know what this means. Just now, 11.30pm, I drew again blind and I got the eight of cop and then the second draw the redinari once more there's another entry the day after um, where she's describing the cards the cards that she draws 
Um, and then she says, at lunchtime, I replaced the two cards and again drew blind. It was La Papesa again. So this, mm. this is something that she's giving to Felicity um, from mm -hmm. her own uh, interest in it. Um, so I don't know whether that helps us to understand Felicity or helps us, you know, makes her even more complicated. Um, but another question I wanted to ask, Anna, is whether, whether you think there's any drawing on... Iris Murdoch's reading on on literature that she her maybe in in her own childhood or in uh, adult reading. I mean, I'm thinking something like Henry James on the Turn of the Screw. Um, I mean, I think her reading is so it 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 could be coming out unconsciously. I think maybe she wasn't consciously drawing on those literary sources to depict the, the children. But I'm sure that if somebody wanted a game to, to write a PhD on it. Is that you could you could um, yeah. bring them out. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just I'm just reading the Italian girl at the moment, of course, so I'm thinking about um, Flora and thinking about Elsa and, yeah. and David Levkin, of course, so they, they are not quite not really adolescents. They, they, they're young people, but they're, they're, the, the turn of the screw is actually referenced directly. Um, All right. Yeah. About turn the okay. screw in, in there and Elsa being a being a witch and being uh, being an enchantress. Mm. Um, which is a, a separate matter altogether, I know, but there's, there are mm. certainly, it's certainly in Murdoch's mind all the time. I think Felicity actually is, is an interesting one and, and kind of bookends these kind of um, character, these kind of fae or fairy um, fairy like characters. We've got, we've got Felicity at the, right at the beginning and, and Jan, we've got Moy at the end in The Green Knight who yeah. also have these, has these yeah. psychic or telekinetic um, abilities. Mm. Um, do you, uh, are, are they very closely linked? I mean, it's, um, the, the 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 three girls in the green knight and uh, being almost like um entrapped maidens as well there's something yeah. very odd about that book really being written and published in the early 1990s it seems very yeah. much out of time to me yes and moy is a very uh i mean moy is a a, a sad a, a character whom we feel compassion for i think more than we perhaps do for um felicity or or miranda because she she's so well developed i mean we see her in so many different situations of loneliness of her um sadness she's in love everybody thinks with clement graf when in fact she's not she's in love with the the boy who uh, ends up um marrying her sister so she's unrequited in her love she um has this weird fixation on the painting of the polish rider which i've quite able to understand how she's in love with a painting but she's attacked by the swan in this very disturbing um rewriting of later and the swan i suppose but yeah. again that's that's rather uncomfortable um and i think she's probably the most extended presentation of of these days someone we see as an adolescent with serious mental health problems I like Moy. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think uh, she, there's something very positive about, you know, her spirituality, right. uh, her ability to engage on, again, we have this ability of these young people to engage on a kind of spiritual um, level. Um, and just one more word about Felicity. Um, you, you were talking about your mental health issues. I think Felicity is possibly going to attempt suicide when we leave her. There's a very chilling reference at the end of the, of the Sandcastle where she's sitting on the stairs on her own, 
Moy, um, Donald has gone upstairs with his father. Her mother is in the kitchen with Tim Burke, with whom she's having a little flirtation. And, and poor Felicity's on the stairs and she hears the hissing of the gas as her mother lights the kettle. And it ends with her hearing that. And I think that's quite chilling. But Moy, um, you know, I, I, these three sisters in, in the green light, mm. really interesting. Um, mm. And I think I've argued somewhere that they are all um, aspects of Murdoch herself and they're all color coordinated. Moy is a very blue character. She's a, um, a spiritual character, uh, emblematic of um, Murdoch's attitudes towards art and morality. And, uh, you know, she's quite a good character. Mm. Um, but all the girls, I think, are emblematic of Murdoch's attitude towards evil because they all have to contend with Lucas Graff. Right, and all of them have got very different ways of dealing with him. Um, and Moy is the blue spiritual character with special powers but she's impotent when it comes to confronting Lucas so there's that sort of negative attitude towards her um and then Sefton is green and she's um she's a soldier Sefton the soldier she's yeah. got green eyes and she wears tweed skirts and she mixes all these char characters in a very strong way she's a very well coordinated character um and a historian uh, plenty of pluck and practical courage uh, and she reveres Lucas's scholarship and acknowledges his suffering um, and fails to believe in his guilt. So there's another danger there. And then Aleph, I think, is a chameleon character uh, and she can morph into anybody's color, color coded significant. A protean character, we might say. Yes, that's the word. And um, she uh, sort of articulates many recognizable facets of Murdoch's philosophy, but she runs off with the most evil character in the book at the end. Yes. She's fascinated. Yeah. Mm. So I think there's a great deal of self-revelation about Murdoch in these three um, adolescent characters. And certainly in Aleph, her um, being drawn towards characters who are evil and wanting to understand them. And Aleph runs off with Lucas yeah. and yeah. sort of um, makes a pact with the devil. And maybe um, indicating something about what all great artists have to do make pacts with the devil really work out find out what makes people evil um because you can't be a great writer unless you actually um allow yourself to dabble in the dark arts mm. which leads back to felicity again that's fascinating yes. you've got me convinced dan about the, the <laughs> personality within these three characters um dan over to you i think yes i mean that that's that's fascinating i i i We'll reread it, I think, with 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 all of that in mind. Um, I I wondered if we would finish off with just um, the sacred and profane love machine and the yes, the of course, yeah. I mean that's of... um, a, a little discussed novel, really, isn't it? But um, thinking yeah. about, um, I, I guess Luca in the novel would be the the one to. Um... <laughs> yes, Lu Luca with his elective mutism. Yeah, um, sure. Who has been very badly treated by his mother? I mean, he's been been. Um, had a very deprived childhood really um and um ends up in an institution for some normal children i mean it, it, luca feels to me like a character that murdoch hasn't really got the measure of or hasn't researched or hasn't understood um i, I mean he fits neatly into the into the the narrative he, he has a function 
a, a plot. Uh, he's he's a plot device, but as an actual character, I think he is not. For me, he doesn't really work. Mm. Um, Whereas David there, does the older child. The older child. He, yes. Well, he's but but David again is 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 almost too stereotypically teenage. He has all the all the attributes of the of the teenager. He's um, embarrassed by his mother and he's bored and impatient with the family sort of rituals and he's tortured by his sexual urges. Um, you know, he's he's um, Monty Small says of him, his attitude and movement express the self-conscious histrionic dejection of youth. And I think that almost feels like a tag that she sort of worked on. So I'm, I'm Yes, I think I'm not. Um, I'm not convinced that these two characters are her, her best portrayal of 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 children in in her work. But maybe that's unfair. And you know the novel better than I do. I think it's not my favourite. Um, no, no. Um, I mean the focus of of that novel. I mean the children are extremely incidental. They're they? used, aren't they? Yes. yes. Um, I mean every time I've written about this novel, um somehow they only feature as you say in a very incidental way mm. plot devices mm. um and if i suppose if you really really were to think hard about the way that they've suffered um mm. as a result of the shenanigans of, of their parents mm. um it, it would be quite catastrophic but that doesn't seem to be the focus of attention in this no. novel even more so i think than the other all the other novels we've spoken about you can draw out these experiences of these children if you really give them enough attention mm. i feel in in that novel it's it is less realized as as you mm. say mm. don't feature in my memory of the novel very much at all and of course you've also got the figure of kiki lawyers this kind of yes. seductress kind of um, yeah. adolescent as well maybe mm. You know, maybe these kind of character tropes that Murdoch is uh, maybe not recycling, but certainly using in different ways, perhaps. Well, she's sort of recycling also the the older male um, attraction yes. attraction yes. when at the end of the novel Edgar is going off to David will be at Oxford and Edgar will be indulging his sexual fantasy. I mean, that's and again and that sort of slipped in right at the end, almost sort of um, unnoticed, I think. Um, yes, it, 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 when we think of the ending, we we obviously think of the the terrorist attack at the airport. Don't yeah. we? We don't generally tend to think yes. of anything else. That's what we remember. Yeah, yeah. We take away. Yes, yes, sure. yes. And then actually, at the end of the novel, what's going to happen is that there's going to be a baby born because Emily McHugh is pregnant. Yeah, is pregnant. Yeah. So we're back full circle to. And you've got that really weird ritual at the end where they, um, Emily and his name, I've forgotten. Please. Blaze, blaze, blaze and Emily, blaze, the blaze, the fire is blazing, yeah. the bonfire is blazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they are burning all his wife's, yeah. her, all her mementos of her childhood uh, mm. and are all just being tossed on the fire. Mm. It's, it's mm. That is disturbing, that's, mm. you know. Yes. It, it's a, it's they, a very cruel book in a number of ways. It is, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's very dark. It's a book yeah. about cruelty. And I'd yeah. like to um, conclude the uh, the podcast today by thinking a little bit about her final novel, Jackson's Dilemma. Now, obviously, Jackson's Dilemma is, is not without its critics and its and its difficulties. But there are two particular children who appear in, in that novel. Um, do they serve in a different way to some of these other children that we've been talking about? Or are they kind oh, of, the, I... again, are we revisiting the same kinds of ideas? 
No, I don't think, well, maybe we are visiting the same kinds of ideas, but I think that these two children um, stand out in this novel uh, because I think that she uses these two children to give her final message to the planet. This is how she says farewell. Um, and I think that one of the most important messages in the book come through this presentation of these two children. Mm. There's um, a 12 year old girl um, not directly involved in the narrative. This is when Tuan finally tells Rosalind uh, of the memory of his grandparents when they were fleeing the Nazi occupation. And um, they, they get on a train uh, to be moved away uh, to, to safety. Uh, and the whole family are on the train, the father, the grandparents and the children. And then at the last minute, the 12 year old girl runs off the train because they have left the family dog at home and she runs away. Um, and just as the, the um, train is taking, moving out of the station, the girl returns with the dog on the platform, but they never see her again. She's not saved. It's an, I was going to read a little bit of it. It's terribly, terribly poignant, distressing. Uh, that image of the child, the lost child. And I think she gives us that as a message. Um, we have to remember man's inhumanity to man. We cannot forget the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, so that fleeing of the Jews to Britain at the beginning of World War I, uh, some of whom left it right to the last minute, um, and being that moment being remembered uh, with that image of the young child on the, the train. Now, the, uh, there's another young child um, here, and this is Bran, Bran Denarvan. Now, I looked at Boddington, um, and Bran is, he says, is about nine to ten years old. Um, he's an orphan child. His father has died. His mother brings him up. Um, I thought he was older than, than nine or ten, but either way, um, he's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary gifted child. He excels at maths. He's passionate about history and literature. He speaks fluent French, Italian, and he's excellent at Latin and Greek. Now, that sounds an awful lot for a nine to ten year old. But either <laughs> way, <laughs> he's definitely um, he's definitely going on to Oxford um, and having suffered the death of his father. He has this resilience that we've talked about that some children mm -hmm. seem to have. He's described as having curly amber hair, pale brown eyes, and being fiercely intelligent. Um, so he rises at dawn with when the rest of the house is asleep. This is right at the end of the novel. And he goes out into the open air, into the fields and onto the stables. He has this ability to commune with nature, to be part of the natural world and revel in it and take strength from it. Um, and this is how we leave this child. And this is right at the end of her very last novel. He climbed over a five-barred gate and ran upwards now panting across a field, then through another gate. He stood a while breathing deeply by a hedge and then walked on slipping through another hedge into another field. Here he stood breathing hard, looking anxiously about. Then in the still slight hazy morning light, he saw the big hunter coming to slowly towards him. He called softly, Spencer, Spencer, as he walked now to meet the horse, and in a sudden clumsy embrace they met, Bran clutching at the great neck and seeking for the head as the horse leant down towards the boy. 
Bran began to walk slowly across the field, the horse following, and he stopped again, reaching up his arms to the horse's neck, stroking the huge face, looking into his beautiful eyes. And tears came to Bran as he said his name and felt with his hands the warm, smooth, tense skin, and it was as if he were holding up the whole world. Here, last message to the planet. We have to keep our contact with nature and, and the world and... Uh, and it's very positive as well, isn't it? I mean, it a is. lot of what we've been talking about today has been about damage and transgression and grief and remorse and so on. But there are moments of hope and, and you know, and elements of light um, coming in through the, through some of these children, at least. Oh, I think that is the most positive representation mm. of, of, you know, the love, the instinctive love that he feels for nature and for animals and that he can commune with that. And we have to take, I mean, Lucy, of course, is writing, Lucy uh, Olton is writing about uh, Murdoch's um, eco-criticism and, and her desire that we should all, you know, be careful and nurture the world that we live in. And that, I think, is part of this message. And the child appreciates the necessity uh, to do that. So it's a very positive message, I think, that she leaves us with. A warning through the child um, left stranded on on the platform and another child with his future before him thank you Anne. so as we come to the end of our podcast i'd like to invite each of you to recommend uh, one of her novels to our listeners it doesn't have to be one that we've discussed in detail today but one perhaps that would give a really good overview of to, um, how she views the child or the adolescent Jan, well, I, to... I would go back again to um the sandcastle i i sort of skim read this again for the podcast because i thought I, I need to go back. It's one, you know, Felicity and more with two of the children that stuck in my mind. Um, it's quite a remarkable <clears throat> novel, I think, and worth revisiting if you haven't read it for years or if you haven't read it before. I, I would have a look at that novel again. I think it's been a little bit maligned and not seen as terribly important. Um, but like the Italian girl, when I went back to that, I was stunned by that and thought, how could I have missed so much mm. on that? So, Go back to the sandcastle and see if you haven't missed something there. Thank you. How about you, Jan? Well, uh, I think I would go back to the, the word child, um, not so much to see the portrayal of children as to see um, her best representation of how early childhood can, uh, experiences can damage an adult. In Hilary Bird, you've got a wonderful picture of early childhood, in a sense, ruining his life. And I think she does that really well. It's not it's not the most um, cheerful of books, but I think it's it's there's a lot in it. There certainly is. And I think it's absolutely one of her best. And, mm. and we, 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 talked, we we talked about a word child on um, the previous podcast, of course, on, oh, right. um, on Murdoch and, um, and Peter Pan. So I think that oh, that, that yes. would also be. Yeah, um, I, thoughts to look out for um, mm. when you're when you're rereading either Word Child or, or of course, uh, revisiting the Sandcastle. So um, that was that was that was a great that was great, and 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 of course always um, throws up different ideas for um, for future podcasts that I hope um, both of you will come back to at um, at a later date. So my thanks very much to uh, to Jan Skinner and to Anne Rowe, and my thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>